Yoga Journal, which is the longstanding print magazine for yoga professionals and the yoga community has a large online presence. And it is owned by the same parent company that publishes Clean Eating Magazine. So there's a lot of intersection in the writing and the journalists between Yoga Journal and Clean Eating Magazine. I find it very problematic. I find it extremely problematic, but that's capitalism, right? It sure is. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast where we talk about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I'm chatting with Jessica Grossman. Jessica is an experienced anti-diet registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, weight-inclusive health practitioner, and yoga teacher. She's on the Faculty of Yoga for Eating Disorders, where she teaches the popular Compassionate and Mindful Yin Yoga series. And she's a co-founder of Anti-Diet Culture Yoga, a platform with a mission to keep diet culture out of yoga spaces by providing training and educational opportunities for teachers. So as you can probably guess from her bio, Jessica and I are discussing the intersection of diet culture and yoga today. This was such a fascinating conversation for me because I truly did not know the extent to which yoga has been colonized and appropriated by white people and diet culture. And if you have a fraught relationship with yoga or have had that over the years like I have, I think you will get a lot out of this one. I do want to quickly acknowledge that Jessica and I are two white ladies having this conversation. Jessica also has thin privilege. I'm very aware that in order to divest from yoga, from diet culture, and white supremacy more completely, we need to be learning this from people of color. We do shout out some of those voices towards the end of the episode, but I would love, love, love to know who else you are learning from so we can continue this conversation here. So here's Jessica, but first a quick break. Okay, I want to take a minute to read a few of the notes you guys left on our first annual reader survey. Almost a thousand of you responded and left us so much amazing feedback. And I just wanted to share a couple of the notes that really made me smile. So the first one says, I'm always excited to see a burnt toast email. I love the sense of community you've created. And the more I learn about diet culture, the less I want to experience it. So it's awesome to have a space where I know it won't be floating around. Thank you. Yes, no diet culture here. Quite the opposite. The second person wrote, I'm always looking for more ways to challenge and change my eating disorder mind. Your emails help me do that and make me feel safer around family. Thank you. That one really means a lot. I'm so honored to help anyone, support anyone in the recovery journey. And the final one I'll share today says, I love sharing this with people who don't identify as fat, particularly other parents who have fat kids, and are struggling with how to feed them, deal with medical bullshit on their half, etc. And I just find your whole deal so empowering and awesome, and I'm going to go subscribe right now. So A plus to that person. I love that. Thank you to everyone who completed the survey. We learned so much about what makes burnt toast work, and it's really helping us plan for the coming year. And if you would like to be in what is truly a very special community, make sure you're signed up for the burnt toast newsletter and consider a paid subscription, just like that reader. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. Hi, Jessica. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Virginia. I'm really excited. So why don't we start by having you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your work? 
Sure. So my work is primarily patient-focused nutrition therapy, and I work to help individuals reestablish a comfortable connection with food and body, most often after years of living in diet culture. I am a member of ASDA, the Association of Size, Diversity, and Health, and use Hayes principles in my individualized care. Amazing. I'm also a yoga teacher and really love bringing together all sorts of ways to help people feel comfortable in their body. I think you're our first yoga teacher on the podcast. And today that's going to be our focus. We're going to be talking about this intersection of diet culture and yoga. I think for a lot of listeners, this probably isn't breaking news. We've all kind of seen the Lululemon version of yoga and the Gwyneth Paltrow goop version. I think a lot of us may assume that diet culture has been baked into yoga from the start. But is that true? Or do you see this as a more recent kind of co-option of what yoga is? Well, I want to start, <laughs> Virginia, by asking you if you know what the word yoga means. So I want to spin the question back to you. <laughs> I feel like I knew this when I did a lot more yoga, and now I'm going to fail this quiz. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. So yoga is a Sanskrit word that means to yoke or to join. So right there, the word yoga does not mean acrobatics, leggings, green juice, restrictive diets, or any other stereotype that has been portrayed in the media through diet culture. So I want to acknowledge that right from the start, that yoga has nothing to do with diet culture in its origin. I'm going to give you a little history lesson here. There's okay. eight limbs of yoga, and with only one being the physical practice of yoga, the poses and postures that we see so often. Yoga really is about, from the classical traditional sense, the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. And the physical practice of yoga was developed to help rid the body of distractions, of impulses, to be able to sit and meditate. So if you think about kids in a classroom and you're a mom, I'm a mom. We know that if we want kids to sit and concentrate, first we got to let them get all their energy out, mm -hmm. maybe run around on a playground, have playtime before they're able to sit calmly and concentrate, whether that's concentrating on a lesson or concentrating on themselves. And yoga, the physical practice of yoga is in the same vein, very similar to give the body time to rid itself of the distractions, of the energy, of the impulses, to be able to turn inward and sit and focus in meditation. I love that framing, and I'd never thought of it that way. And yes, nothing you mentioned has to do with weight loss or changing your body size or shape. So that's really interesting. So when did the shift happen? So yoga was brought to the West from Southern Asia about 100 years ago. And notice I said Southern Asia and not India because yoga is, its inception was not just in the land that is currently India, but all throughout Southern Asia. So we want to give respect and honor to those lineages that were the creators of our modern day yoga. But it was brought to the West about a hundred years ago by a Russian woman named Eugenia Peterson. 
She later changed her name to Indra Devi. And she was an actress and a spiritual seeker who traveled to India and became the first female student of Krishnamacharya, who was considered the father of modern yoga. And he created the posture-based yoga practice, the physical yoga that was influenced by martial arts and wrestling and British calisthenics. Remember, this was in colonized, Mm -hmm. British-occupied India. Mm -hmm. And so Indra was able to bring her yoga studies to the West with her when South Asians were not able to come West due to the Immigration Act of 1924, which set quotas for immigration from less desirable countries. And Indra came back to the West, came to Hollywood dressed in saris and was emulated by movie stars and Hollywood types seeking exotic practices from the East to keep themselves young and beautiful. And this was the start of the modern wellness movement and with yoga at the core. She's like a proto-Gwyneth Paltrow. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, how ironic that she was on Gwyneth Paltrow land. So the Western conception of yoga has always been more linked to diet culture. You know, we wouldn't have called it diet culture back then, but certainly this idea of the body and controlling the body. I would say so, especially in the yoga space that is of white practitioners. Mm -hmm. I think South Asians in the West practicing yoga that are coming from that lineage, from their motherland, it's a different type of practice. But the yoga of diet culture is very whitewashed. Let's talk some more specifics about how that manifests. What are some of the most surprising ways you've seen diet culture infiltrate yoga? Well, so, you know, yoga is part of wellness culture. And wellness culture is that friendly guise of diet culture, which is rooted in capitalism. And yoga in the West is rooted in capitalism. I can tell you that working as a yoga teacher to make a living, to earn a living as a yoga teacher is not sustainable in our society, in our capitalistic society. There is just no way to go about doing that for most people other than those elevated, and I'm going to use air quotes, gurus of yoga that are the ones that we see in the ads for the Lululemon and all of the other brands. Yoga studios. So we have yoga studios in the West, not so much in the East and South Asia, But yoga studios in the West are for profit. And you can just look at what they sell beyond classes, the food, the drinks, the clothing, the apothecary items. This is all so steeped in diet culture. So before setting foot in a yoga studio, there's this assumption that certain clothing is required to practice yoga. And that clothing is most often indicated for particular bodies. And that keeps the diversity out of yoga spaces. We don't have to look too far to see that the ad campaigns for leggings, for active wear that is indicated for yoga practices is usually on very small bodies. As you're saying that, I'm just thinking like, I would feel weird going to a yoga class not wearing yoga pants. Like we have this sense that you have to, but you also 
don't have to. Like when I practice yoga at home, I often do it in just my pajama pants or whatever. Like any loose clothing works. And why we have this idea that you have to wear this one type of pants to go to a yoga studio is fascinating. It's all about that culture of fitting in and needing to feel like you're worthy of being in that space. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. And yet the pants so rarely have pockets and are not efficient for many of my needs. Well, that's why you need more of the swag to go along with that. Oh, right. So of course. Yes. You need, you know, the correct bag to hold your yoga mat and mm-hmm. it has to be the correct yoga mat and then the correct yoga bag, which has the pockets for right, this, that, right, right. the other, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. There's many more products we can buy. So yoga studios right there are selling more than classes. They're selling a lifestyle. And I can tell you that walking into many studios, and I have not been in many studios since the pandemic. That's been the beauty of the pandemic for me is the ability to both practice and teach yoga from the comfort of my home, which I think is very very important. But yoga studios, you know, have to make a profit and they do this by selling more than classes, by selling more than experience. So there is the clothing, there is oftentimes food. And I can tell you that it's not chips and candy that are sold in yoga studios. It's, you know, whatever bar or superfood of the moment that is capturing the attention of wellness culture that is sold in yoga studios. It's, you know, specific filtered water and kombucha and all sorts of other foods and foodstuffs that really have nothing to do with yoga or well-being, right. but just, you know, offer that glimmer of hope that by being in the space, by drinking this liquid, eating this snack, you'll become more than who you were when you walked in the door. And they're also selling restriction too, right? There's often an emphasis on cutting out food groups. I'm hoping you can tease this out a little bit because I know being vegetarian is linked to some of the history of yoga, but then, I mean, cutting out sugar seems more of just a straight-up diet culture intervention. So there are many different lineages of yoga. As I mentioned, yoga is not just based in the land that is currently referred to as India, but all over South Asia and different lineages, different traditions do have different traditions when it comes to food. There's this assumption though, that to practice yoga, to be a quote unquote good yogi means that you are vegetarian, if not vegan. And that cannot be further from the truth. Really what we are looking for in a yoga experience is to feel well in your body. One of the ethical precepts of yoga is ahimsa. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard this term ahimsa, which means no harm and oftentimes gets co-opted into meaning veganism as no harm. You're not harming another living organism, but I like to turn back ahimsa to no harm upon yourself. And really when you're not harming yourself, you're loving yourself and taking care of yourself. So the notion that to practice yoga means 
that you have to eat a certain way or not eat a certain way is completely false for the general population. As I said, there are pockets of yoga lineages and people practicing yoga that do take a different stance, but for the general public that wants to bring yoga into their life, keep on eating whatever you want (laughs) and feel well in your body. I mean, that's really powerful. It's a really powerful reframing because yes, I've gotten stuck on that Himza do no harm piece. And I think that's really useful to consider Well, we have to include ourselves in that doing of no harm. I also want to circle back quickly to the sort of guru concept that you touched on because this is maybe a little bit of a departure from the diet culture conversation, but I think not entirely. I'm curious to hear more about to what extent the idea of a guru is important to what yoga was originally and how you see the guru concept working out today? Because it seems like that's often where a lot of the diet culture comes in, right? Because people in a studio or in a yoga community are so revering this one teacher to the point that there's a lot of opportunities for harm. Correct. Correct. So yoga and its origin was taught from teacher to student. And there wasn't a you know, set number of hours that you study with your teacher and then are declared a yoga teacher. It was a lifelong relationship of learning and reciprocity, you know, between student and teacher and continuous learning. We don't see that sort of student-teacher relationship in modern yoga in the West. There is more of that guru culture where teachers are revered, where they're oftentimes put on a pedestal and whatever a teacher says is often taken as the right thing to do, the right way to be. And that's really dangerous because the scope of practice, which is a set of rules and of policies set forth by Yoga Alliance, the governing body of yoga teachers, the scope of practice of a yoga teacher does not include any talk of food, diet, or nutrition. Hmm. Yet we know that to be far from the truth and definitely an area that is abused by many teachers who take their self as a teacher, as a self-prescribed guru to share their thoughts, their opinions, their personal experiences as the way things should be done on and off of the mat. And that's where the danger comes in. I'm sort of looking back on my own relationship with yoga over the years and so many workshops I went to with, you know, male gurus who were very hands-on in their adjustments of, you know, the women who came in with the right Lululemon leggings. Like there's just a whole a whole lot going on there. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't even touch on the hands-on adjustments and partly from being teaching outside of a studio in the online space, I think we've gotten away from adjustments a lot because my students are on the other side of a screen. But that sort of abuse in teacher-student relationship definitely has been um, well-documented. But I think the more subtle abuse or harm is the teacher, the guru that inflicts their students with their own 
beliefs, opinions, knowledge that isn't their place to share. And it can be hard when you're seeking something from yoga, which a lot of people are, you're in a vulnerable position, right? Because this person seems to have a lot of answers. They're personifying this lifestyle that's extremely seductive. And often you're getting some real tangible benefits from the yoga practice. So it can get very murky and hard to sort out, like what is coming from, you know, which aspect of what I'm doing in yoga, what's coming from the breathing or the meditation or the physical work and what's coming from now I'm doing this cleanse with 30 people in my studio. Exactly. Exactly. It gets blurry, as you said. And I think it's important for anyone that is currently practicing yoga or looking to begin a yoga practice to really examine their intention for being in a space, for being in the presence of a particular teacher. Yeah, let's talk more about that. There's obviously so much that's great about yoga and making yoga more accessible for all bodies is so important. So how can we think about separating yoga from diet culture? How do you start to suss out where a studio falls in all of this? And how do you figure out what to wear if you don't want to wear skinny yoga pants? You never need to wear skinny yoga pants. The most important thing from the start is to be comfortable. So if skinny yoga pants aren't comfortable for you, then that's not what you should be wearing. But I think the most important thing from the start is to read class descriptions. If you're looking for a yoga class, read class descriptions there should not be any promise of changing a body or any regimented requirements for diet involved, right? Along the lines of diet culture and wellness culture and its roots in white supremacy and patriarchy, we have to look at classes and specifically about levels of classes and saying that a class is advanced and has advanced poses is not a place that welcomes everyone, right? If Mm. you go to a class and feel like you're being told to just rest while everyone else is doing some fancy shape, pose, then that class is not for you. And that class shouldn't be taught that way either, Mm -hmm. right? We have autonomy as yoga students to practice the way we want to in our body. Our bodies are unique and individual and have unique capabilities that change from day to day. So there is no one pose or practices more advanced than another. It's learning how to honor your body and its unique abilities from day to day, from moment to moment. And I love what you just said too, that the problem is really with the class and not with you, because I certainly have had, and I'm sure many people listening have had that feeling of failure when you're told, okay, you can just go into child's pose now. And that feels very stigmatizing. I think a lot of teachers mean it kindly. I think they mean like, listen to your body and take your time and whatever. But If you're the one person in the room, and especially if you're in a bigger body than everybody else, it doesn't feel kind. I also pay attention to the languaging used by the teacher and the languaging used within a yoga studio, making sure or aiming, you want language to be qualitative and not descriptive. 
descriptive language can be inappropriate and stigmatizing. So for example, if a teacher says, place your hands on your fleshy thighs versus place your hands on your upper legs, (laughs) there's a big difference right there. Rest your hands on your abdomen versus rest your hands on your soft belly. Well, it just isn't comfortable, right? And Mm -hmm. this is something that's very nuanced. And my experience in teaching yoga for eating disorders and those suffering from eating disorders, that's very trauma-informed work, really informs the language that I use. But I think it's something that all yoga teachers need to have exposure to and be taught this nuance of languaging, of qualitative and descriptive languaging, because there is something very uncomfortable about being told to put your hands on your fleshy thighs Mm -hmm. or on your soft belly. I had a yoga teacher once who taught triangle pose by telling us to imagine our body between two panes of glass. And it took me years to even recognize how stigmatizing that was because I don't want my round body flattened between two panes of glass. Like that's not a helpful note. And I don't really want anyone's body being flattened between two panes of glass. That sounds painful. And yeah, it's really interesting. But that sort of visual, I understand what they're going for with that image, but it's an incredibly anti-fat image and really anti-body image. I couldn't agree more. I want to you know, really point out that yoga is an embodied practice. So that means listening to your body's cues and messages and trusting yourself and your instincts. So if you don't feel comfortable in a space, if you don't feel comfortable in the presence of a teacher, if it's online or in person, trust your body, trust your nervous system, you know, if you have that awareness, because it's very hard to have an embodied practice an embodied experience in a body that is heightened and on alert Mm -hmm. and not relaxed and not comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really important point for us all to carry away from this conversation. So in terms of where diet culture comes into yoga and especially in social media at this point, Yoga Journal, which is the long-standing print magazine for yoga professionals and the yoga community has a large online presence. And it is owned by the same parent company that publishes Clean Eating Magazine. So there's a lot of intersection in the writing and the journalists between Yoga Journal and clean eating magazine. I find it very problematic. I find it extremely problematic, but that's capitalism, right? (laughs) It sure is. The other, I think, very um, alarming situation that I've seen time and time again for years is this notion that some students, especially in an active, a more active yoga class, will leave before Shavasana, before the end of class. And Shavasana is this time to reconnect with the body, to integrate all of the practice into the body. Its definition is corpse pose. It really is, not to be gruesome, but 
just laying on the back in stillness. That is Shavasana. And there are a number of people, as I said, especially in more active classes that will leave class before Shavasana because it's not a calorie burning pose Mm -hmm. and they feel like they need to keep the body moving and active and that rest is for the weary. Mm-hmm. It's very sad to me. I admit Shavasana is the pose I often struggle with most, not because I want to burn calories, but just because I'm feeling like I need to get on with my day. But that's also why it's important, right? Like that's what I need to be challenging. But yes, well, thinking of yoga as a workout period is so problematic, but certainly then thinking every minute of it has to be this really intense workout. That's just straight up diet culture for sure. Yoga is a workout is straight up diet culture because as I said at the beginning, yoga is for the purpose of being able to sit and meditate. And one thing I didn't say at the start is the way that I define yoga is the integration of body, mind, and breath in the present moment. So Virginia, we're practicing yoga right now. We are like having this conversation. We're here, we're breathing, we're present, we're in the present moment. We are practicing yoga. We are not doing handstands and contorting our bodies. We are not. For people who can't see us, nobody's in a headstand right now. Maybe when we're done recording, I will go and get into that headstand, but (laughs) for now. That's such a more inclusive way to think about it because so many of the, you know, the yoga journal cover poses are so inaccessible for bigger bodies. And we should talk about that too. Like I have a long time hatred of shoulder stand because... If you are a person with a stomach and large breasts, like being in shoulder stand can just feel like your body is suffocating you. And it it kind of puts me immediately at war with my body when that's not at all how I want to feel during a yoga practice. It always strikes me as a very kind of male body designed pose. I don't know if there's other examples like that you want to mention in terms of getting away from this like specific idea of doing yoga for certain bodies. I want to acknowledge that any body, any shape and size body can be challenged by different yoga shapes, yoga poses that someone in a thin privileged body may not have the ability to get into every shape. And that is due to bone structure, bone structure and the uniqueness of anybody's bones and joints and tissues is regardless of their body size. Mm -hmm. So this assumption that you need to be in a smaller frame body and a thin privileged body to practice yoga is completely false. Just because you have a smaller body doesn't mean that you're able to do every shape either. So there are ways for every body, every single body shape and size to get into nearly all of the shapes and postures and poses that are out there. We see, and I've done training on how to teach yoga for those that are bed bound yoga for people in wheelchairs. There actually is bed yoga, which Mm -hmm. is so lovely and really beneficial for people that don't have the ability to get out of bed or don't have the ability to get out of a wheelchair or some other mobility device. And as you're saying this too, I'm realizing another way that the diet culture shows up is we so often think of modifications for poses as either failure or like a starting point and you have to progress beyond. Like you have to eventually be able to do inversions in the middle of the room is always a big one that comes up in class. And like, I have no interest in doing a headstand in the middle of the room. I want the wall there. I want to know that I've got that support. And 
the idea that I've somehow never achieved a true headstand, you know, because I don't feel safe doing it in the middle of a room is, you know, I mean, there's so many examples like that. Yeah, it's using props, including the wall. The wall is the greatest of all props, is not a sign of inadequacy or of being a beginner or being a failure. Oftentimes, and more often than not, the use of a prop can help get further into a shape, into an area of the body that you didn't know you had access to. Who else do you love who's kind of fighting this diet culture definition of yoga? I mean, who else should people be following? Who are you learning from? I would love to shout out some names. I think this is a really interesting question because I think that there are a lot of people bringing awareness to the origins and to the roots of yoga, the South Asian roots Names like Susanna Barkataki. There's two podcasters from the Yoga is Dead podcast, Tejal Patel and Jaisal Parikh. Those three women in particular are bringing a lot of awareness of the roots of yoga and what has happened through colonization and cultural appropriation of yoga practices. I don't see as much of the resistance to diet culture because I see this as a little different from the fat positive or body positive movement within yoga. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is a small but mighty group of us registered dietitian and yoga teachers. And as a a very small group that I know of that are in the anti- diet, weight-inclusive space, practicing as registered dietitians as well as yoga teachers that are really trying to make sure that diet culture does not continue to bring harm or the harm of diet culture into the yoga space. One of my colleagues and I have started Anti-Diet Culture Yoga as a training platform for yoga teachers to help them decipher what is the true teachings of yoga versus what is the influence of diet culture. So that, as we discussed earlier, that guru culture, that trusting Mm -hmm. in your teacher is for real, is trusting knowledge that is passed down because it is the lineage of yoga, not the lineage of diet culture. Right, right, right. That makes sense. There's so many ways we need to rethink what modern yoga has become. It makes sense that not everybody is doing all of the work because there's so much work. I'll shout out a couple of people I love on Instagram who are doing yoga in fat bodies. Jessamine Stanley has been a longtime go-to for me. I love her underbelly app videos where really a turning point for my yoga relationship, both in terms of being able to do yoga outside of a studio and do yoga with someone who wasn't in a thin body. The you know all of that was really liberating for me. I also love Fringish on Instagram. Shannon does a lot, sort of challenging people's perceptions of what fat bodies can do with yoga and creating safe spaces. So they are one that I really enjoy. Diane Bondi is another one I've learned a lot from. So you're right. There's not nearly enough, and different people are working on different aspects of this, but it is encouraging to see this kind of small community of of voices emerging. I want to give a shout out to Accessible Yoga, specifically to Jeevana Heyman. 
who has done a tremendous amount for bringing yoga to all people and that recognition that anybody and everybody, regardless of shape, size, color, ability, disability, so on and so forth, can practice yoga in a meaningful way, whatever that way is to them. I also want to mention Yoga for Eating Disorders, which is an online school that I'm on the faculty of. One thing that we didn't touch upon, which is a whole other conversation, is that not all yoga is good yoga. And yoga and its intertwining with diet culture has been harmful and in the perpetuation of disordered eating and um, development of eating disorders. And so not all yoga is good yoga for all bodies and Mm -hmm. for all people, especially those suffering with issues of disordered eating and eating disorders. And at Yoga for Eating Disorders, we teach in a way that is safe, is trauma-informed, and is available to help heal the relationship with the body in a way that is neutral and supportive. So important to have that safe space. Well, Jessica, we always wrap up, as you know, with our Butter for Burnt Toast segment. So I would love to know, what is your butter for us today? I'm so glad you asked because it's summertime and there's nothing better in the summer than ice cream. So my butter for burnt toast is ice cream. And I'm talking about real ice cream. I'm not talking about Tasty Delight. I'm a former (laughs) New Yorker that thought that Tasty Delight was a good thing and it's not tasty. I'm talking about real ice cream. And now is the time on a beautiful sunny afternoon or a rainy afternoon like I have today here to go and enjoy a bowl of ice cream, a cone of ice cream, whatever it may be. And I just can't think of anything better. It really is one of the most perfect things about summer. I'm going to do a plant recommendation for my plant-obsessed listeners. My better is the great umbrella plant, Dharmara peltata. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Okay, so Dharmara, it looks like a giant rhubarb. It has a very round umbrella-shaped leaf. It's a garden plant, not a house plant. I should have started with that. And it's native to the Pacific Northwest, but it grows really well in shade gardens if you have enough moisture. I've just put some in and they get huge and they put up these really pretty pink flowers in the spring and then you get these giant leaves for the rest of the season. So if you are looking for a good plant for a shade garden, check out Dharmara. It's kind of like a alternative to a hosta, but even more like giant, big leaves. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, for being here. This was a great conversation. I definitely learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners did too. Where can they follow you and learn more about your work? You can find me on Instagram at with health and gratitude. And that's also the name of my website with health and gratitude, which has all the information for how to work with me for nutrition therapy. I teach weekly online yin yoga classes, which are accessible for everyone. There's no previous experience required links to my classes at Yoga for Eating Disorders. I have hundreds of recipes on my website, original recipes. I used to do work in recipe development and culinary education. So my website has lots of information, regardless of what you're looking for. There's something for everyone, I think, there. Amazing. We will link to that. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. If you'd like to support the show, please do all the things podcast people ask you to do. Subscribe for free in your podcast player. Tell a friend about this episode. Leave us a rating and review. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 per month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad in sponsored free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Cell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus-size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell. And Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.